Welcome to Japan on Fire episode 31 on Fist of the North Star and the head and body bursting hero antics of Kenshiro, the Fist of the North Star himself, gets a big screen head and body bursting adventure that was such a shock to the senses that it's been forever altered since, literally. We'll get to that. In this episode of Japan on Fire, we turn to anime once more and the movie Fist of the North Star from 1986. And my name is Kenny B and with me... Because, um, you know, whether he approves of gore-drenched anime or not, uh, he is someone whose opinion and knowledge I value. And it is Paul Fox of the East Screen, West Screen Podcast. So let me say hi to you. And is this in your wheelhouse or is this uh, borderline uh, uh, filthy and too sleazy and too, uh, too vile for you? Well, hello and ohio gozaimasu and all that good stuff. And... Uh... I think you're going to need to change your name to Ken Shiro B. Oh, that was a missed opportunity. (laughs) I'm going to do that a lot, not a Bruce Lee. But uh, I'm going to do the uh, sort of build up to the Ken Shiro. Wonder how many times the voice actor had to do that. How many variations the voice actor had to do that. That, I wonder if it was was even the same voice actor. They had somebody else come in and, you know, do um, just do some Foley dubbing for that particular thing. So uh, it might, uh, voice actors need to have stamina. And maybe whoever they brought in for Kenshiro's uh, had stamina. So I guess we'll never know. We, we can only hope. Uh, so this is the Japan of Fire. And uh, we, we, without uh, revealing your uh, brief opinion of the movie, is this uh, anime that you are drawn to? Uh, that's not a pun. But uh, is, is, there, is there an allure to, uh, to gory anime like this? Or do you prefer your animes a little bit more tamer you know i mean i back in the day again setting the wayback machine back to the 80s uh, when i was but a youth this was something that was coming out in limited uh, versions in american comic releases and i think you're going to talk about that as we get a bit more into the history of it and back then it was something that really drew me in because of even though it was black and white you know it was much more graphic than a lot of what was going on at the time in your Marvel, your DC, and and some of your independent, independently published stuff. And it pulled me in for a while, but the problem was that they didn't give us much of it or all of it, and that kind of thing really irks me. Honestly, I was never, I mean, I was pulled in because of the martial arts aspect of this and because it was more violent than regular, although I wouldn't say this is overly violent compared to a lot of titles out there that I think you'll mention later. So, you know, and by today's standards, I mean, even some of the contemporary anime I'm watching this season, it's kind of on par for the most part. I mean, yeah, you don't get fingers in the eyeballs and stuff like that all the time. But a lot of contemporary anime is as gory as some of the stuff that they're doing. And you'll talk a little bit more, I think, about the controversy. The art style was something that... You know, I wasn't really a big fan of, I have to say. I, again, I was drawn because it was like this post-apocalyptic Mad Max mixture of, you know, um, martial arts and, and doomsday narrative, which I thought was great. Um, but especially in the anime version, the out-of-whack proportions of characters was something that kind of just didn't really appeal to me. And so at a certain point when it got really hard to keep up with this series, I just moved on to other things. One thing that just struck me that you you said that uh, these were black and white comics, and and is, was that more common versus colored 
comic books. I mean, I, I'm totally not that guy, so it just struck me that, wait a minute, black and white? Yeah, even for to, even for today's manga, if you know, um, if you're a manga reader, you will know this. But if you've never picked up a manga, even as somebody who loves anime, you know, there are people who just love anime, but they don't want to read um, the the comic versions for whatever reason. The first couple pages will usually be in color, and they'll be kind of like on magazine quality paper if it's a really popular, really popular iteration, and then it'll shift, you know, after like page four or five, into just your standard kind of manga-esque black and white. Ma, my comic book is broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and th- that's kind of just been the standard for a long time. And I remember early on when they kind of before the big manga boom of the 90s, when companies like Viz were just starting to re- release some of this stuff, they were releasing it kind of more in American-style formatting. I think, if I recall, they were, you know, some of the books were... Uh, more of regular comic book dimensions and you'd read them as Americans read them like left to right rather than right to left how they read them in Japan right and then when I when the comic boom the manga boom started to really take off the companies that were doing it and I think Viz was was part of that movement as well they said okay we're just gonna it's easier for us to rather than reworking these for the way that Westerners read to keep them in their original format and I think that made a lot of, you know, the, the the manga fans really happy too. I mean, it, so what if you're reading it in the opposite direction? Um, that's the way the artist did it. That's the way the artist intended it. And you know, having to rework it and repage it so that it works for the Western style of reading is, is pretty labor intensive. So, yeah, it must have been quite amazing then to if, if you've read so many volumes primarily in black and white to see something on the big screen or, or whether it was for video or for the big screen to see your adventures in full color, whether whether it was a bloody story or not. It must have been quite amazing for fans, I suppose, um, even though you probably had illustrations on, on the front and uh, things yeah. like that where so you knew what they would look like. Uh, but uh, still, uh, that must have been quite a, a nice leap, I suppose. Yeah, it was, and you get a different perspective too. I mean, even today, when you go from something that is say a popular manga where the cover and the first few pages may be in color but then you'll have a lot of supporting characters who are only in black and white and then it gets an anime release and you get to see them in color for the first time you get a you know a different perspective on things like hair color and you know what kind of color clothes they're working because it's no longer in that gray scale mm, interesting well uh, uh color me interested uh color me interested there you go but, uh, it was simply not on my radar that these things might have been black or white because I've never picked up uh, a manga as such, even though I'm an anime fan. But uh, uh, it's just that my reading comprehension skills are kind of nil, so and they're getting worse. So I, I stick to the moving pictures, <laughs> so to say. <laughs> uh, but at, at any rate, uh, we got lots to talk about, so I'm going to do the contact information really quick. This is uh, Japan on Fire on the podcast on Fire Network, and for all the uh, back catalogue of Japan on Fire, including the Hideo Gosha series that uh, we've been doing for a while. I got help from author and writer Robin Gatto to uh, conclude it, so I'm very grateful for that. But you can find the Japan on Fire back catalogue on our site. If you have any questions or feedback uh, on, for instance, Fist of the North Star, did you read it? Uh, did you watch it? Uh, let us know. Podcast on Fire at googlemail.com. Follow us over on social media. Uh, click the Facebook button to get to our Patreon group. The Twitter button to reach our 
feed and uh, you can find us on apple podcasts as well and uh, review us of course we would very much appreciate that and you can stream us on stitcher radio and spotify so that's the contact information at the time of recording uh, your wonderful podcast east screen west screen is uh, on a little bit of hiatus but it has a wonderful archive of um, east screen west screen review so in your own words um, do throw out the plug for for the kind people so they know where to find the archive yeah, you can find us over at concast.com. And yeah, we are in a bit of a hiatus. Uh, not sure at this point when we're going to be restarting. Um, hopefully at some point in the future, but uh, time will tell. And it's uh, due to a busy co-host and uh, things like that. And life life tends to take prior- priority. But I know you're an idea man and uh, I'll support whatever idea comes uh, your way and whatever idea you uh, put into podcast form. So. When it's in my feed, download, listen immediately. I'm, I'm that dedicated. So. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, okay, let's um, get into it. Uh, we, we have a little bit of a meaty background, but uh, uh, so that, that means we have a distinct two sections of this show. And uh, I will put timestamps in the show post so you can find the review quickly if you want to fast forward to the review. But what we'll do, the two distinct sections are first a fairly lengthy dive into the manga and anime background of the property that is Fist of the North Star. And that is then followed by our review and discussion of Fist of the North Star, the movie. And the plot of the 1986 movie that comes from the Discotech Media website. Uh, in the near future, which I believe is 1990X, the TV series uh, for uh, a great number of episodes open with 1990X, which is a nice, nice little Japanese uh, so sci-fi staple. Like uh, Godzilla movies and things like that sometimes takes place in 1990X, I believe. But uh, regardless, uh, I find that amusing. That's where Fist of the North Star takes place. And Earth has been devastated by a nuclear hell. In these troubled times, mystical martial arts have replaced uh, weapons of mass destruction and the legendary Fist of the North Star style may be the only hope for humanity's survival. Ken, the rightful master of Fist of the North Star, is forced to fight old friends gone mad, wicked new enemies and even comes face to face with his power-hungry elder brothers. At the end of this blood-soaked gauntlet is a fighting chance to reunite with his beloved Julia or Julia. Fists fly, heads explode and the super-powered men of this violent new age clash in what may be the single most violent animated epic of all time. So that's the, the plot for you and as with countless of other original video animations, TV series and movies, Fist of the North Star existed in comic book form, in manga form. It was written by the pseudonym Boronson. I think that's how you pronounce it, but regardless, that's a pseudonym. Uh, this post-apocalyptic story was ser- serialized in the weekly Shonen Jump between 1983 and 1988. And its 240-plus chapters were also collected in so-called Tankobon volumes, which is, if my understanding is correct, standalone books that were released outside of the of the newspaper. So you got like gathered volumes and uh, these volumes equated to uh, around 27 to collect uh, the, um, the, the, like, uh, the, the complete works of Fist of the North Star. Was that something you remember picking up or those were strictly Japanese-only type of releases, these gathered books? If my memory serves, and I'd have to dig deep into storage because I'm, I still got these somewhere, but... I collected the first run from Viz Comics, 
And they weren't in the sort of standard manga form, if my memory is correct. They were just, as I said, they kind of redid them as as standard Western-style comic books, I want to say. And they only released, I want to say, really the, I mean, because this is like a huge, long-running series. The first, I, I want to say it was like 20 chapters, maybe, or a bit less than 20. I don't know if they picked it up or moved on to somebody else, but... Around that time, um, I had just, you know, moved on to to some other things and I I, I had lost interest in following along with it um, because of the sort of spotty release schedule and things like that. And um, other titles were coming up and, you know, you only have so much money to spend. So you got to make some make some decisions somewhere. But 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 these weren't hardcover, like gathered releases, but Tanko Bone volumes, it sounds like a like a hardcover thing but maybe when when it when it reads standalone books it's it is a soft cover uh, soft cover release maybe yeah i think those are just like your standard because a lot of times these will as you mentioned these will be serialized in a big kind of magazine book you know like shonen jump weekly or something like that and it'll be a you know a chapter they'll put in one chapter and there'll be lots of chapters from other series that are running Mm. and then if a series is popular enough, eventually the artist will gather, you know, so many chapters and put them into these volumes, which are the equivalent of like, a, you know, what they do with U.S. comics when they collect something into what they call a trade or graphic novel format. Um, although it's the books themselves, they're, you know, they're the more the smaller standard manga sized books. At any rate, uh, Fist of the North Star is considered uh, one of Weekly Shonen Jump's most popular title of the 80s, and its um, illustrator Tetsuhara has spoken about the idea and the concept of Fist of the North Star, saying it came to life through discussion with his editor at the time, who suggested a manga about a martial artist striking acute pressure points of opponents. And no wonder this was suggested, because apparently Hara had an interest and knowledge about pressure points. Uh, two test stories were published in spring and early summer of 1993, and this led to it being commissioned for a weekly run across three years that eventually actually turned into a five-year deal because the popularity increased. And Dimension Boronson came on board as a writer by that point, and uh, they, they now firmly as a duo did the world-building we know by setting it in a post-apocalyptic future. The test stories was set in present-day 80s, and uh, Kenshiro was redesigned into an older hero with past tragedy and things like that. Uh, by the end of the 80s, um, there, there there was uh, you know enough traction where Fist of the North Star attracted um, uh, interest uh, from, from the West, and that uh, translation or adaptation uh, would take place, and uh, that happened by the mentioned this uh, communications who published the first 16 chapters as an eight issue monthly comic in 1989 and and you're right and then there was a break because then between 1995 and 1997 they also brought out chapters 17 through 44 but never did complete it with which you hinted at it's not uncommon when it comes to english language releases especially if they are hefty stories 200 plus chapter stories to get the complete english version is uh, you know it, it happens more often than uh, than you might think i suppose well back then yeah especially because again it this was being pushed out what i say would would be slightly before the big manga boom of the mid to late 90s when they were just getting all kinds of 
titles. This predates, you know, Amazon back when you had your big box bookstores like Barnes and Nobles and others, and they just have entire manga sections that you could just go in with all kinds of genres. And it was really like the start of a golden age if you were really interested in Japanese comics and Japanese anime. But um, they weren't cheap, to be sure. I mean, the, your your standard book at the time was usually like seven or eight bucks for one volume. And as you said, these could go for usually runs of 25 or more, you know, before they would complete. Um, but prior to this, again, it was more like an experimental stage. And, and Viz and, and some of these other smaller groups were pushing out stuff to see what would stick. And I remember we talked a little bit before on our the other show um, when we talked about Stormwriters, about Jade Man Comics from Hong Kong, which was around this time trying to do the same thing. And they're taking these really long, multiple, you know, hundreds of issues in some cases or hundreds of chapters and, you know, testing the waters in the U.S. to see if the stories would work and, you know, the cost of translating and all that. And a lot of times what ends up happening is, you know, they don't get a complete run of a title. You get a few chapters or a story arc here or there. But things get much better um, later on. I mean, did, did did he ever learn, regardless of what property we're talking about, how to like condense it, like prepare for, we can't publish it all, but let's condense it to make sure we have a start point and ending point. Did they did ever think in those terms uh, too? Not, not that I ever really came across. Um, I mean, most of the title, the early titles that I was reading, things like um, Naushka of the Valley of the Wind and Appleseed, um, were fairly complete and concise runs and have since been released in inversions in their entirety. And usually today, if um, you know if a company is putting out uh, a manga, the problem you end up having is that they're doing contemporary or real time uh, publishing. So you know you know so stuff that's coming out now in Japan um, that's still being written, that's still being put into those weekly magazines. And then later combined, you know, will come out pretty much real time. We don't get the weekly magazines, but what we get, we'll get the combined volumes, um, you know, within a few months of the Japanese version getting released. But then you have to wait for, you know, another year and a half or two years as the author is going through and doing the weekly stuff for them to get that material together and, you know, combine it. Now, because we live in the age of the Internet, of course, there are means for you to go and get access to that stuff if you want to learn some Japanese or, you know, improve your language skills, you can get access to it much, much easier than you could back in in the 90s. Um, but you still have that language barrier to overcome. Okay, cool. Well, impact was indeed evident for Fist of the North Star uh, a bit into its run in Japan, uh, not after its run was concluded. And uh, the animated form was looming. But we're not at the movie yet, uh, but rather a toy animation brought the saga of Kenshiro and his fellow North Star martial arts brothers to TV in 1984. A total of 152 episodes were produced. Um, I'm about on episode 105. I don't know if you abandoned it or if it's in your queue, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) No, I kind of stuck with the the movie and um, I don't know if I ever watched any of the any of the actual TV episodes. Um, I do have a VHS of, of the movie release from, 
from way back then. Right on. Well, it was produced for four, for four years, ending in 1988, a couple of seasons, four or five. And uh, it was quite limited at times, animation-wise, um, the, uh, the TV series. It used sometimes static images and moving background to create movement. And, and uh, they needed to conceal a lot of the blood using filters and white gore. So essentially, Kenshiro kills everyone and they explode. Uh, their, their, their blood is like milk. So uh, it, it's like that. And, and they don't... Uh, you, you don't see limbs and entrails left behind. People just usually explode and they evaporate completely. So they uh, they didn't need to draw any gruesome aftermaths. So simply they, they didn't. And the wasteland uh, scenery was quite repetitive. But to its credit, it really did expand on all the practitioners of the North and South Stars, etc. And gave them backstories feeding into the current conflicts. I mean, that's how you use the expanded manga arc of course and if you uh, if you're going to produce a lot then uh, then you have room for backstories and i think uh, once you get past the first 10 20 episodes i mean they're 20 minutes long then if you get past the repetitive nature of the initial ones that then you realize that there is a grander backstory here so if you're interested in that then the tv series works on that level um, as well i mean the character of raul who is the main opponent here he veers back and forth emotionally in terms of his intention and his rage. And that, that gets interesting the longer into the run you get. So I think they did a good job on that. This aired fully subtitled on the Nippon Golden Network that broadcasts to uh, four islands in Hawaii back in the day. Uh, the first 36 episodes were dubbed into English by Manga Entertainment. And it aired on Showtime Beyond in the US and the Sci-Fi Channel in the UK. And uh, those 36 episode dubs are also available on the Discotech Media Blu-ray set of the series as, as an option. And you, you can stream the series in full on Crunchyroll or buy the Blu-ray set that features standard definition transfers. But uh, being on Blu-ray, there are fewer discs in total versus the DVD sets. I think that's a good option. Discotech Media have always been open about that. They have a, about that. They have a banner on any release that's um, not high definition that says, well, it's SD on BD, the standard definition on Blu-ray disc, which I think is uh, nice transparency. So as soon as I'm done with um, with the series, I'm picking up the set to rewatch the first 36 with the English dub. So. I uh, want to support it that way. But we'll get to the feature movie. And this was also produced by Toy Animation and released in 1986. Remember, the TV series started in 1984. So uh, the manga Nova TV series had concluded. Uh, so, And I didn't get the impression, Paul, that this was farmed out to completely new production staff to alleviate the pressure of the crew producing the TV show either. Because uh, many, uh, or at least the key staff and cost were reportedly brought in for this uh, movie adaptation of uh, the beginnings of the story leading up to Kenshiro's fight or one of his fights with the character of Raul. It was a two-hour movie so they needed to rearrange the order of events and take liberty with um, with events and uh, sort of condense them and that's to be expected of course. Uh, this saw international release too which is uh, which is the reason Paul has it on VHS. Uh, Streamline Pictures produced an English dubbed version that went onto the market in 1991. So, uh, and that that dub is 
nice for nostalgic purposes, but it's not particularly good, uh, I would say. So, I mean, it is what it is. I've seen it a bunch of times with the dub, but uh, I, I do prefer it in Japanese uh, versus anything else. But uh, that's what you had back in the day. So, uh, in terms of performance at the box office in Japan for the movie, it grossed about 1.8 billion yen, and Anime New Net- News Network made a conclusion that this made it a hit and would have made it number five of the top ten local films that year and as they also wrote the demographic previously for the tv series or maybe the manga could conceivably be young boys despite the violence but the makers as you well know paul still went all out embracing the freedom of violence on film and uh, as the uh, article at anime news network states I'll, i'll link to it the film did face a backlash from parents, and the home video release uh, to follow was delayed by Toy as the mo- movie went through a process of alteration, censorship. The film's many gory shots were processed with early video tech, uh, and now some of the shots look very blurry, uh, really like someone put an eraser over, um, or like uh, put some thinner over the uh, over the art, and you can't see it very well. And uh, several shots were also tinted in various ways to reduce the impact of blood and gore. And uh, what, what, the, what the director, uh, Toyo Ashida, thought uh, while this process was going on, that he wanted uh, a different conclusion to the film's finale. So he uh, redid uh, the, I think, dialogue mainly, and maybe a few events of the finale for home video. So it has an exclusive home video ending. That is now available as a, like a supplement on the Blu-ray. So uh, it, it has the like the theatrical ending is on the main transfer, and then you get the home video ending as uh, as supplement because the the sources for that are not uh, pristine. So what all this would mean is that if you read this article, that the Japanese theatrical version played to audiences without any applied filters, but uh, it means after it went through all of this that uh, the the uncut prints in terms of length they still contain these alterations we don't have two prints in circulation uh, but here's where we get to an area where there are rumors there are facts but there are also a lot of things that are up in the air in terms of what is going on behind the scenes here so i'm gonna try and, and uh, break it down because uh, there were also rumors, and this is so classic, you even hear it in Hong Kong, that the original print was lost in a fire. I, when I hear that, I hear like um, uh, myths and rumors created uh, pre-internet or during the early internet. And uh, d- therefore this article uh, presents a variety of of uh, sort of rumors, myths that you can balance against each other. And uh, the writer theorizes that the original elements were damaged or destroyed when the optically censored version was created that you all, uh, that you all uh, see well, if you buy the disc or stream it. And I don't know, Paul, what the practices were back in the day, but if that was true, like, well, what a shame a duplicate wasn't worked on, but rather they were working on the original uh, original negative. But... There's a flip side to this too. The writer provides um, this flip side that um, that it do- that it does exist and uh, it isn't released because the artists uh, and writers uh, Bronson and Tetsuo Hara they, they want to keep tight control over their work. So you, you, this might exist. This unfiltered, fully uncut, uh, no blurry type of version. This might exist, but they're withholding the the print because uh, there's money in that. Or maybe Toei themselves. Or withholding the print because 
maybe their quote to anyone who's interested in this is like sky high like if you want the uncut version pay up and no one is willing to do that at this point so my my, my point uh, as i go through all of this we don't exactly know why we're still getting partially optically censored fist of the north star but it slipped out uh, partially uncensored an older italian vhs was uh, uncensored to some degree even the original trailer has an unaltered shot but uh, fact of the matter is even going after going through the high definition remastering uh, that we see now on on disc the uncensored shots are still you know either lost or locked up so this is the version you're gonna have to deal with with filters and blurriness then you get to what people says uh, say paul when they think back on having seen fist of the north star and we get to sort of a, a big boss situation as people remember they might have seen the unaltered print in Japan theatrically, while some claim the censorship actually was in place already on the big screen. All the blurriness. So, again, it's important to state that little to nothing can be confirmed on the status of the original source material since Toy is keeping a lid on it. They're not making any statements, apparently. That, that That's the story uh, at this point. I mean, I don't remember any any big, like, classic anime that has this type of history where it's um, where, where so much is altered ironically the entire movie Paul isn't affected I, I I kept thinking of this there's so much gruesome stuff still in the movie that's as is and in full high definition and I, I wonder if they received that backlash from parents who demanded changes maybe they thought like well we'll do some and we'll see if they notice the rest to see if they're so hell-bent on protecting their kids. You know what I mean? Because some of the stuff that's in here, unaltered, uncut, is just gross, man. <laughs> and some of it that, that, that it's optically censored. Uh, especially that uh, that shot that's in the trailer. That uh, I'll, I'll talk about it specifically in a bit. That is probably the grossest effect in the entire movie. So someone's face gets just ripped open. Ripped open um so i don't i don't know i mean when you watch it today did, did you notice that well why is that censored and not that then did you uh, did you spot that personally or was it just were you numb after a while <laughs> i mean it, it, i i sent you a comment when i was doing the rewatch of this and i'd forgotten so much of it and i guess in again it goes back to the idea that for this genre which i guess it it falls under the the shonen genre of you know, comics, um, which in Japanese refers to comics that are directed mostly at young boys, you know, teenage boys, usually early teens um, and maybe a bit younger. And you still have this genre very popular today. You know, I mean, some of your most popular titles fall to this genre, your Naruto, Baruto, your One Piece, um, even Dragon Ball, you know, is still around and they all fit within this genre. And while those all have levels of violence to them. I mean, usually they tone, you know, and, and even characters will die in those. So it's not like they don't address the issue of death, but the idea of the level of violence that's here, you know, again, moving from a black and white manga at the time where you might have violence being depicted as extremely graphic, but not in color or, or even, even, you know, bits of body organ, you know, but still black and white. Sure. And then you put that into the screen on color 
And it, it, I'm sure that it did outrage some parents. And we might look at that and go, well, why? You know, what's the, what's the big deal? And this is a trope that I think a lot of Asian cinema does, right? If there's something that's overly graphic, they will, for a live action film, they, what will they do? They will shift it to uh, black and white suddenly. And so somehow that lessens the, you know, it downplays this, the realism, I guess, of the implied violence. At, at the very least, it appeases the censors somehow. Um, but yeah, you know, I was like, as I'm going through the rewatch, right at the front when they're going, they go from these, you know, idyllic sort of vistas with this kind of light orchestral music. And you're thinking, oh, everything's great. And then boom, you know, World War Three and people getting melted in atomic fire. They're not, they're not editing that out, you know, people just being melted. And then a few moments later, we get the introduction of Kenshiro and his conflict with Shin, and you get the fingers in the chest. And it's like, oh, well, they've got to kind of blur that out a little bit because that's not okay, but melting people is. So, yeah, you, 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 know. you wonder what, like, uh, I'm, I'm still befuddled by the fact that, well, if they were so goddamn dissatisfied about the level of violence, why didn't they, like, just hold Toy's ear and made sure everything was changed? Because it. Uh, but maybe that was Toy's way of, well, we're going to change some, but uh, we're going to let some go and see if they notice those whiny bastards. And uh, Which is a shame, because now we, we have a partially uh, partially visible version only. You know, Let's uh, talk about some specifics then, uh, in terms of, uh, we have four examples for you to look look for and look up um, in terms of this uh, censorship. And on, on YouTube, there's actually a version, um, like comparisons of the uncensored shots that's from Italia VHS and so forth. So in the opening scene that Paul referenced, uh, Shin rams his fingers into Kenshiro's chest multiple times, and that is tinted blue in the censored version, while the Italian VHS shows this uncensored. So it's merely tilted, it's not blurry. Uh, Shin's uh, bloody finger after having uh, uh, pulled out of Ken's chest uh, that has the, the, the actual bloodied finger that has blur just uh, on the top of his finger so they they blur that little piece out a uh, second instance is after Ken's re-emergence uh, a thug is hit by one of his techniques and he falls in front of the character of Butt and his head explodes and subsequently there's a fountain of blood just spraying out of that twitching corpse while a shocked bat who gets splattered with blood too looks on so this goes into a sort of reddish sepia tone mode and then fades out of it after the offending imagery Paul had done its thing and uh, which looks so calculated that it's uh, literally fading into the actual real colors uh, free during a lineup of civilians before the self-proclaimed king of the fist uh, th- that scene happens uh, uh, there's a procession director that crushes a man's head for not chanting in tempo with the others and in the regular version we just cut away to a distant shot of uh, uh, Raul on his horse while the Italian VHS literally shows the scene in full as his head is crushed it's not overly violent but uh, they, they literally they, they didn't even keep the shot in and finally the character of Ray slices his fingers across a man's face and it splits into five pieces. And this has blurring effect applied to the top of the rather grisly imagery. But the Japanese theatrical trailer features this shot untouched. And that's, I, I think that's one of the grossest effects in the entire movie because of the, the, the nature of just the fingers just clawing this guy's face into five pieces. And uh, the blurry effect really hit it well. And when you saw it in the trailer, like, holy hell, this movie now rocked. <laughs> like, this moment now rocked more than the blurry effect. So, uh, for me, Paul, 
I've seen the comparisons. I mean, I can just imagine the way it looks, so I don't mind watching the filtered version as such. I mean, obviously, we would rather have it, you know, in optically censored way and in the movie rather than completely removed from the movie. So there, there is obviously that. But at this point, even on Blu-ray, we still have the optically censored version. So don't sit around and wait because you're gonna you're gonna wait for a while. Anyway, we're going to talk of that, that the makers of Fist of the North Star, they weren't done. They, they had some some creativity in them. But we're going to switch to international makers now. As in 1995, Fist of the North Star was made into a live-action film in English. It was directed by Tony Randall and co-written by Peter Atkins, both of which collaborated on uh, also a very disgusting movie, my favorite Hellraiser movie, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. And this live-action movie of Fist of the North Star starred Gary Daniels as Kenshiro, Costas Mandalore as the villain Shin. So obviously the movie tackles initial story arcs. Shin isn't in the entire run of Fist of the North Star. And Malcolm McDowell and Chris Penn are also in the movie. And uh, in a neat twist uh, trying to catch, I guess, long-time audience of the TV show and the animated movie, the original voice cast of it did the Japanese dubbing of the live-action movie. It was actually a straight-to-video movie, both in the US and Japan, and was not met with any great enthusiasm, and uh, the reviews uh, stated that this was a poor adaptation, that the depiction of the pressure point techniques and the live-action looked tame, so, I mean, it's a tall order to get this, uh, I suppose, as vicious on screen, because uh, it uh, d- these effects of heads blowing up, you know, that requires a special effects budget uh, of note, and... Um, I haven't yet seen it because I have no real interest, but uh, did you um, uh, bite the bullet and um, sat down with it either back in the day or for this for this show, this live-action movie? Yes, sadly, both of those are true. <laughs> I was back in the day and again for this. Were, were you psyched back in the day? Like, oh, yeah, it's coming to live-action. It was an interesting time to be sure because back then, you know, it was the age of video and things that were coming out um, to blockbuster direct to video, sometimes they'd be pretty good. And so this was something that had been on my radar and I was like, Oh, a live action, you know, fist of the North star. And then you sit down and you start to go through it and it's like, Oh, okay. I see what they're doing here. What is it? Is it tame or it simply doesn't work live? Well, part of it doesn't work live. I mean, that that's part of the issue. Um, another big part of it is that it's very low budget, you know, because it's a direct-to-video kind of thing, it has, I would say, it has the look and the feel of contemporary shows for the time. So if you're somebody who ever watched any episodes of Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, or Xena Warrior Princess, it's got that kind of production value look to it, which is fine, because as shows, I love those shows. The problem is that they don't bring in the talent for the fight directions, So it's very much Hollywood-style fight direction as opposed to like what they were doing with Hercules and Xena at the time where they were bringing in these people from Hong Kong to really up the scale of fight direction with a lot more wire work, a lot more acrobatics, and things that people have been seeing, you know, in Hong Kong stunt work for a long time. And that's what made those shows really fun, whereas here they really lack that. And, I mean, Gary Daniels, Hong Kong cinema fans may know him he played the Kim character, the henchman character in Jackie Chan's City Hunter, the one who ends up turning into Ken, yeah. right? Um, and he's the lead as Kenshiro physically, I think. You know, he's fine. He's an actual, he was an actual kickboxer back in the day. 
he has a physicality that works for the role, but when you hear him talk with his Aussie accent and you're expecting Kenshiro, it's just, you know, I think listening to the Japanese dub might have been a better choice if I had that option. And he, you know, thankfully they don't give him a, a ton of dialogue, but it's just such, such weird casting. Malcolm McDowell here as Ryukin, his master. Costas Mandalore, who I don't know much of his work, um, but he's almost a dead ringer for his brother, Louis Mandalore, who was a co-star with Sammo Hung in Sammo Hung's uh, US TV series, Martial Law. So for me, when I hear him talk and I see him, I'm, I'm just thinking back to Lewis because it's like they're almost like they're not twins, but they could be. Um, it's it's that kind of uncanny resemblance. Do they do any like enlarged heads and like bodies exploding and things like that? They do do that on a couple of occasions. And that's where I think this film works because they do it with some pretty good practical effects. You know, I think that's where the the film starts to shine. The unfortunate part is that a lot of it just comes back down to sort of some Hollywood style fist fighting or martial arts direction, which just isn't that dynamic or exciting, especially when you look at, I mean, on the anime, as you said, it's often limited animation and, and stuff, but it's got, you know, the sounds going with it and it's got the editing and the pacing and the way the animation's being done to make it much more dynamic. And here, just seeing like two guys kind of go at it. What, the other thing you don't really have is even though they get some some really big players for a couple of the villains, um, I think some some at the time some wrestlers and and some guys were cameoing in some roles. And when you look at the at the movie or you read the manga, I mean the size proportions. You know, it's like David and Goliath sometimes <laughs> with with the way you know some of these people that Ken Shiro is facing off with. Um, and as I said, that never really appealed to me, but at least it gave a sense of the the the, the varying threats that Kenshiro was facing. Um, and so here, like the next big villain up after the the Shin character is um, played by Chris Penn, right? Sean Penn's brother. <laughs> best <laughs> of the best, somebody... Chris Penn, <laughs> yeah. man. You know, you, it's not somebody you think of as as being a a villain opposing to uh, to Kenshiro, and he's playing. A role called Jackal, which is really just uh, a version of Jagi, although he's not right. the brother of Kenshiro. Mm. And he, but he's got his head all bound up through the movie, and, and you know, and that's kind of cool. And you know, if you know what happens to uh, to Jaggy, a similar thing kind of ends ends up happening to to um, to Jackal. And he's got some amazing lines in it. He you know he says really over the top cheesy stuff like it ain't easy being sleazy. You know, and he just hey. <laughs> That's my way of living. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, so he gets to choose some scenery, but he just feels kind of out of place hmm. for this. Um, some other people you'll recognize, like Ron Howard's brother, Clint Howard, Howard here. You know, he's one of the villains. Because when you think villain, you think Clint, yeah, you Howard. Think Clint Howard. They make some changes. It is, you know, it is pretty much the the, the Shin storyline, as as you mentioned. And it's different from, I would say, both the movie um, and, as I understand it, uh, the TV series, um, for the most part, with what ends up happening with, um, you know, some of the supporting characters and things. It's there. If you're a big fan, you know, you've probably seen it. If you've not, you know, I wouldn't buy it. Um, but if you get, you know, get a chance to see it somewhere because it's out there. You know, it's something to watch. Like I said, the practical effects, the few times they use some practical effects to try and 
sort of recreate some of the things from the anime, the manga, um, the movie. Uh, that's where I think it really, really works well. Well, cool. Well, switching back to the Japanese team of uh, Buronson and Tetsuhara, they uh, wrote a, an original novel published in 1996 that was the basis for the f- basis for the free episode original video animation New Fist of the North Star. And by, by the time they were closing in on the 25th anniversary of the manga, a big project called Fist of the North Star, The Legends of the True Savior, was, was released over the course of three years, 2006 uh, until 2008. It consisted of uh, three feature films and two OVAs, and it was essentially an updated reimagining of events from the manga with some added characters and changed events. And uh, because this was a media franchise of of note and uh, something that made money uh, and we were if we go back to the 80s uh, there were other ventures that fist of the north star could go into and it appeared on on computers and gaming consoles in japan starting in 1986 and uh, hokoto no ken violence gekiga adventure appeared on uh, the uh, nec pc 8801 home computer system and this was a graphic adventure game so obviously they uh, they took the chance to work different genres with this uh, framework. But as expected, uh, they also went the route of the side-scrolling action game, even role-playing games, and fighting games over the years. And there are too many to mention, but uh, two are of note, uh, connecting it to the West. The 1986 game released for the Mark III console, also known as the Sega Master System in the West, it was also called Hokoto no Ken. It was a side-scrolling action game, but when released as Black Belt internationally, that actually didn't have the license attached to it, and therefore that was redrawn and altered. So it's, uh, it's, it's literally, literally not Fist of the North Star in the West. The 1989 game Hokoto no Ken for the Mega Drive or the Sega Genesis also came to the West with changes in the same vein, and that was called Last Battle. Uh, some more modern style gaming ventures uh, for Fist of the North Star um, happen. It happened, of course, in the 3D beat 'em up uh, genre. I mean, that, that's almost a given that this must get a fighting game or two. And uh, Fist of the North Star Ken's Rage was released in 2010. It had a 2013 sequel uh, that uh, went back to the source material for for uh, you, know, you know the first half of the manga specifically for its uh, storyline combined with uh, beat 'em up stuff, and also uh, Fist of the North Star Lost Paradise is a 2018 PlayStation 4 title made as a 3D beat 'em up game and came to us courtesy of the team behind the popular Yakuza series of games. And perhaps the most neat looking, uh, uh, because I'm a fan of the old school anime design. Uh, is the earlier 2D fighting game Fist of the North Star that was released to the arcades in 2005 and to the PlayStation 2 in 2007. And uh, I don't know if you uh, saw this or know of this, but the design work makes it look like the characters were really cut out of the 80s anime and it was not like updated or redrawn designs. And that's what you were fighting with, which was really, really cool. Did you stumble upon any of these super old ones or uh, some of the very newest ones or even that uh, 2D fighting game that I just uh, talked of? No, these were games that, uh, for whatever reason, just eluded me over the years. I would recommend uh, like watching some Let's Plays of that uh, 2D fighting game, Fist of the North Star, for PlayStation 2, because I, I think you would appreciate that it really looks like you're playing the old school anime version. Uh, which, which uh, I mean, I mean, I'm crap at those games. So I'm not gonna play them. Uh, but, uh, uh, but uh, I appreciated the 
the step they took to uh, replicate that. Uh, furthermore, uh, writer Tetsuhara had um, storytelling still in him, and in 2001, a prequel manga called Fist of the North Sky began being serialized in the weekly comic bunch, and it lasted until 2010. And uh, whilst the first uh, Fist of the North Star was, as we've told you, set in a post-apocalyptic uh, future, this took place during the Second Sino-Japanese War in 1935 and features a predecessor to Kenshiro. So that's an interesting angle. It was adapted in English and published in America in the manga anthology uh, Raijin Comics. Uh, but uh, they stopped being published by episode um, by issue 46. So uh, I don't know how much uh, of a dent they managed to do in the Blue Sky storyline. And uh, as a final, 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 final piece of their research, because uh, Paul just can't stay away from Google. Uh, so I'm going to ask him, what the crapping hell is DD, Feast, Feast of the North Star? Okay, so this is just because... Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny, the, this is, um, if you're familiar with what the concept of uh, SD or chibi in Japanese, it's when they take existing characters and they kind of shrink them down to be kind of small, cute, and, and silly. So D.D. Fist of the North Star is, I think it's two seasons long, and this has been translated. It's up on Crunchyroll. For Crunchyroll subscribers, you may be able to find it on Funimation or other services as well. Um, and the premise is, is that uh, Ken Shiro and his, you know, four brothers are out, you know, out of work in modern Japan for whatever reason. The end of the world has not come, but... But, uh, you know, they and they end up going to work at a convenience store that is run by um, Lin's father, who is he, he looks exactly like uh, Ryukin, their master. It, it's owned by Lin's father. And then Lin and Bat both work there. And one of them, they're trying to get one of them, you know, hired as a part time staff. And they're all kind of competing against each other. And, you know, it's just silly, silly nonsense. But, of course, it's very self-referential. It makes a lot of fun of the characters themselves uh, from Fist and North Star and and other aspects of Japanese culture and and things. And if you're somebody who's into uh, that kind of thing, if you're a super fan of Fist of the North Star, I'm, you, I'm guessing you've probably heard of this. But um, in case you haven't and you don't mind parody, uh, this is something that's out there and available that you can check out as well. So, so obviously it's devoid of any, uh, any crass violence. It's just uh, comedic and cute at least the little bit that i've seen of it you know there's no there's no gore per per se you know um but it is funny because it does it does one thing that i think the movie doesn't do very well and perhaps i think the tv series uh, which you can speak to will have done better and i and i think the manga probably did it better too because the movie introduces you to so many characters so quickly and gets to the end so quickly you don't really get a sense of any of these people very well so the character of like ro or the character of um uh jagi you know they're they're actually kenshiro's brothers yes right they're related so it, this is a big family squabble and there's there's another character called um toki i think who's the fourth brother who's not in the movie but he's in the in in the series you know, so their relationship as brothers is is something that they really kind of play at and and make fun of in this in this DD series, and that's one of the things I think if you come in new to the series and you look at this, you're going to see a character like Ro and how he kind of 
you know, does a does an about face by the end of the film and go, huh? And you're kind of scratching your head. You know, some of the, some of the other characters like Jaggy, who are just they're there. They feel almost like two dimensional villains, but really, there's a lot more to them. I think that you just don't get in the movie because it's just so crammed together so quickly. Is this a, an appealing sort of creative choice to you that that you would welcome in more? anime properties to do a dd version or or it's a case-to-case basis whether this works or not i think it's a case-to-case basis um you know i i think i've seen this for some they've got these running for a lot of contemporary you know manga i think sd gundam is you know super deformed gundam is a series that's out there and has been in not just in regular media forms but they've made game video games about the you know that as well and it, you know, you recognize it as a sort of offshoot subculture of something when it's really popular. I think Attack on Titan has a variation of this too. You know, when you think of you're familiar with that series and you think of those kind of grotesque titans down in sort of SD chibi form. But you know, it's something that works and sells, and you know, some people like it. So it's not for everybody. But uh, if you're somebody again who's out there for some skewering and some parody. Um, it's another thing you can track down. So uh, let's uh, let's hope for a DD La Blue Girl or DD Urutsukudoji <laughs> or any of the hentai stuff to make that cute and uh, small and compressed. I don't know, but whatever whatever makes you uh, creative uh, and uh, whatever crafts a, a sort of money making entity, I suppose, then they're not gonna stop producing these things. And uh, obviously, they, they they're allowed to because they, uh, this wasn't done by. Tetsuhara or uh, or Burunson. This was adapted by someone else, but obviously they need to turn to them and say, "Hey, can we do this?" And we we said that they they keep tight control over their property, or Toei does. And someone said yes, so you got to think about that too. That they're not uh, uh, they didn't see this as someone taking a dump or over fist of the North Star. That's the major background because uh, there is a lot to be said and. Uh, Something can be multimedia is um, often interesting to me, especially when you go back as far as uh, early computer games and so forth. But let's move forward to the movie. And I mean, it, it's not a hidden gem or a masterpiece or anything. It's a cult title. And uh, it's not terrifically poignant, but the basic post-apocalyptic temple and uh, the hope the hope of life that they want to restore. I mean, that's there. You You understand it. You can pick it up for the 110 minute experience it is but you mainly watch this for the fountains of blood and body and brain explosions that occupy this frame for 110 minutes i mean that means it's good fun but there are flaws here and one main flaw would indeed be that uh, how do you condense it and they did condense a lot but i think they took on a few um, too many elements for for a two-hour movie here, they could have excluded some things and had a more have a more lean experience. I don't mind it being open-ended because I would, uh, they knew they had an audience, I think, Paul. So they might not have felt that pressure that we need to have a beginning and an end, otherwise we're screwed. I think people knew that it's an ongoing story. This is an alternate take on it, and we have the on- ongoing stories to read and watch on TV anyway. So we're not too bothered with this being open-ended and. Uh, merely a little uh, a little sort of condensed version of the story i think it's good fun but uh anime masterpiece i wouldn't throw that term around but uh there's a reason it's a cult title and it's fun because of that 
So uh, this this is a revisit uh, for you. Uh, I mean, it's not a regular revisit for you. This. So uh, what was it like picking this up again? No, it's interesting. Um, not a regular revisit. Again, I had a an early history with the English release of the comics stateside, and then I kind of drifted away and came back to it with the VHS release and the the nineteen ninety five uh, adaptation. You know, it, again, it's the the art style was one that never appealed to me. I was more into it for the the storytelling of the time and the location and and the violence. I thought was interesting. Looking at it now, kind of going back, some a, a couple things really struck me. First was the art style. This is very different from a lot of the art styles of the era. You know, especially stuff that I would watch. You know, looking at things like. Uh, Macross, or in the U.S. as it was known, Robotech, or Space Battleship Yamato slash Star Blazers, or even you know, uh, Gotcha Men, you know, uh, Galaxy Express 999 stuff like that. This had a you know, it's got a very unique style that will I think appeal to some, but not to all. But a, a lot of things of the color tone and some of the shading and even some of the the bits of violence that we see here were for me very reminiscent of the heavy metal movie um, that that came out, um, you know, around the same time, if, if I'm, my memory serves. It was surprising to me how much of a vibe I was getting from that, that it actually felt less like an anime title and more like it was something coming, you know, from the, the heavy metal movie. And perhaps that was because of the violence, but also some of the color tones they were using, and some of the other aspects of it were resonating with me on that level. And I came to appreciate it a, a little bit more. Again, if you're somebody who's like a big fan of, you know, Asmorellis or Captain Harlock or other stuff from this era, the character designs are very, very different here. And many characters are designed to be ugly. Um, other characters are designed, they have kind of a unique, almost non-anime look to them. So again, this may not be a title that really appeals to everybody but where i think it's if you've never seen it it's worth going back and watching and delving into it a little bit is because as a cultural icon it really reaches out into you know lots of different places ken shira himself has very clear references back to bruce lee mm -hmm. um, but also a lot of the design work here is very referential of mad max or the road warrior you know that sort of whole what what is it like in a post-apocalyptic society? You get, you know, the gangs with the mohawks and the the shoulder pads with spiky armor and, and that kind of thing. And even Kenshiro's, you know, his own dress with like the, kind of the, the leather shirt with pads on it. Which always rips in the TV series whenever he goes into fighting and then the, clo yeah. and the clothes are back outdoors. So he, he has a major wardrobe somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of that, you know, you can find... Um, as having been influenced by other science fiction of the era, which I think is interesting, and even but stretching beyond it to more modern anime influences. I mean, the storytelling here, sort of the rivalry between Kenshiro and Shin. You know, if you look at how they're physically composited, you know, Shin's got like long, kind of flowing, um, light-colored hair, and Ryu is kind of this dark, short, um, short hair, somewhat brooding character. And you can see that it's almost like a Street Fighter, Ryu, Ken kind of parallel between the two of them, the, the, this kind of rivalry that they have. 
Um, the idea that the two schools are, you know, not supposed to fight and they're not supposed to face, face each face off against each other kind of thing. Um, you can see elements of that, which kind of emerge in the street fighter narrative later on. Um, there's another series, a fantasy series that comes up in the early two thousands called berserk, which has since been redone where the lead character there very much like a Kenshiro type character, kind of dark brooding carries a big old sword and his rival is this, again, sort of uh, tall, slender, almost effeminate character with long flowing hair, but who's, you know, equally powerful. And they're they're both vying at, at a certain point over the the, you know, affections for a woman. You again, you see how this as a piece of culture goes out and extends to influence a lot of other things. And, and I can really imagine that because I know the TV series quite well that design-wise, they weren't changing up that much. They, they were expanding it so it would look big screen friendly, meaning that the animation is better. But really, the, the design work matches the TV series very well. And I can just imagine that it therefore matches the manga very well. And, and therefore, the influence would have a greater chance to be picked up by so many more people and put into uh, later works, uh, as you just um, uh, spoke of. So uh, even even if the makers of Berserk only read Fist of the North Star, there, there would be a chance that uh, that designs and images would stick with people, uh, regardless, uh, you know, even if black and white. So... Um, I uh, I I think um, a little bit about uh, the sort of intensity of production here because uh, did, I don't know if this was done during a break in the TV series uh, it had different seasons or if additional animation teams were even brought in but um, it does seem to be working with a a different budget uh, uh, in order to produce more slick animation for the big screen and obviously you have the same director as the series Toyo Ashida. And uh, you have the same voice cast back. You recognize Kenshiro, you recognize Bat, and so forth, and Rao. It's just something I like to talk about. They must have been under so much pressure to produce, because uh, as limited as the TV series was, it's still animation. Drawing. Lots of drawing. <laughs> so, and trying to be creative and trying to move the story uh, story forward. And also, they had to be creative, Paul, because now they, they knew that, okay, we, we got a movie here. Uh, we've asked to do a movie. There's money to be made. So we have our core story, but we only have two hours. So what do we do? And that, we, we're, you know, you're forced. You you're using such an expanded story template, and now you're forced into a into a corner. You know, to pick and choose and condense it. And how is that gonna come come off? You know, we have a movie now, not a series now. And uh, do we need to come up with something completely new or change events? And how is that gonna play with the fans if we change up events and so forth because of this restriction time wise? We also have to live up to the production quality need to be better. It needs to be opened up. This is going to be shown on the big screen. It's going to project in widescreen. And uh, it needs to look um, a little bit different. So I, I really think they met those expectations quite well. It's not, you know, Akira in style in terms of ambition and in terms of scope, in terms of detail. A lot of the stuff feels like it's an experience banded version of the tv series animation style only a little bit better and that's not a bad thing i think it's sometimes toyo ashida's style too he didn't want to veer off too much of the um, of the staging uh, the direct the direction how he stages dialogue and fight scenes but it needs to be a little bit more big screen friendly and also clearly uh somewhere along the line they realized that well 
we haven't uh, animated uh, entrails and brains all over the place we're gonna have to do that now and hopefully that was a fun <laughs> fun experience for them but uh, they, they really do i think um they, they they're not gleeful about how they approach the gruesomeness of it all i think they, they use it you know in a balanced way especially during the opening where we see uh world war three as you said armageddon essentially and it could be gruesome and gross these scenes of um of uh, nuclear hell they're really haunting these uh, images and everything and everyone being on fire they're just walking and falling down you know into ashes and uh, I, i'm not sure if this is an inspiration I'm not saying it's an inspiration but when i saw this and i i, I thought it ever since i've uh, ever since i've seen fist of the north star for the first time i kept thinking the um, judgment day sequence in terminator 2 when i see this opening there's uh, just this this inferno james cameron i think he has an eye towards anime and towards worldly cultural things so who knows if this was um, something he was inspired by but um, I, I do like that we get such a impactful opening it's not it's, it isn't just a shot of the wasteland with the buildings lean towards each other but we get a full-on this is what happened and uh it's gonna be gross. Welcome to cinema. <laughs> you know the cinema experience of Fist of the North Star. <laughs> Are you happy, parents? And they were in. <laughs> they were not. It's it's something that I think tends to appear more frequently than not in a lot of Japanese uh, Japanese entertainment. And you know the obvious point back historically is to Nagasaki and Hiroshima and kind of putting that out there that yes this is something we know we understand we lived through it becomes a point of reference in a lot of manga and anime stories not just this i mean i think this is one of the more graphical depictions i've seen but i recall from the beginning of i want to say akira there's a there's a big kind of nuclear style explosion that happens in Neo Tokyo. Yeah, it's that silent, uh, that silent sequence where it just yeah. uh, engulfs Tokyo. Yeah, and then also in there's a a sequence I want to say in Macross, aka Robotech. I don't know if it was cut for Robotech, and it might be in the film version. Uh, Do you remember Love? My memory escapes me, but I'm pretty sure it's in the. In the TV version, because I was kind of shocked the first time I saw it, where in one of the early episodes, I think when the aliens attack, there's a big nuclear-style explosion. And I just remember this scene of, like, a little child and an adult at a store or somewhere, like, at a playground or on the street somewhere, somewhere street level, and just suddenly the parent, like, grabbing the child and then just being vaporized in an atomic wave. And I was like, wow, that's... That, that's kids cartoon right there. You know, that, that's not your normal U.S. style Saturday morning cartoon fare. So I think that's in terms of censorship, we would say in the U.S. like that's a big no, no. But um, because it's something that I think is very much at the core of the Japanese experience, that that's something that has been, a, like I said, a, a point of reference that pops up in anime now and again. And that, you know, it, it, it's a thing. And it's a very different cultural experience that you get. And, you know, by U.S. standards, we'd see then go, that's shocking. But here again, I mean, the graphic level that we get here is 
much higher than than in those other examples. I mean, even that sequence looks way better than anything they did on TV. It's a really nice statement to begin with. We're, we're, we're going to produce some quality atmospheric animation. It is very reminiscent of the, the T2 sequence and... Um, I've, I've seen similar sequences in, in films going forward, but that, that's one of the first ones that I think really had the sort of that dream sequence really had sort of that impactful moment. Linda Hamilton, you know, on the fence and then just having the skin blasted off her. And it's very reminiscent of the stuff we see here and from stuff, like I said, in other, in other media. And of course, uh, speaking of song specifics, uh, they really do replicate replicate quite faithfully the scene where Shin is piercing Ken's chest and he gets those iconic uh, seven seven scars. And I mean, we saw spotty blood spurts in the TV show every now and again, but I think uh, what they're doing here is sometimes similar to TV. Well, that looks the same. That's not too bad. But they they um, they let it run. For a little bit longer, they linger on things a little bit longer. So when Ken's arms or veins burst open, you know that spotty bloodshed where it's like uh, drips, uh, drips almost. That's uh, not uh, terribly different from TV, but 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 they let it uh, let it run. And uh, again, they don't seem gleeful about it, but but they're clearly embracing a, a freedom to uh, to let this run. And as and as we said, to those close-ups of the fingers going into Ken's chest, that was a big no-no for the uh, sort of filters coming in here. Sometimes they use the filter to their advantage when when we see the re- reaction shots of uh, of Julia or Yuria. They are grainy black and white where she screams, no! And that's obviously not censorship. That's uh, like a stylistic trait. So, that, okay, we're, we're getting used to tints here, but uh, then it becomes so becomes so obvious the longer the movie runs that you expect things to uh, turn blue or turn very very blurry. I mean, I can deal with the with the with the colored tints, but the the, the blurry stuff stuff using that uh, ancient technology really does disrupt some of the imagery. I'll have to say, especially because we get a nice HD looking HD looking print. And then those low grade inserts happen, and we see something going on between the smeared, uh, uh, underneath the smeared um, imagery. So, if I were to pick something that's truly distracting, it is those moments. Really, I can deal with everything turning the color blue. Uh, to be on, uh, in my in my view. So, uh, what do you think? Uh, watching this uh, onslaught is that uh, the worst offender in terms of uh, alteration when you can't literally see it anymore? No, it doesn't bother me that much. It it is what it is. It's like you said, it's surprising that they for whatever reason haven't come around to clean it up or to do a re-release of it. You know, I mean, we're going on 3 decades here and I think there are things that are getting close to that level of graphic in terms of violence um for TV shows. You know, again, not showing a lot of organs, but showing, you know, plenty of plenty of blood and decapitations and things and and that's on television so this is this was a theatrical released movie i i I don't know why maybe because they just you know hold it as this thing in high esteem that you know they don't want to be george lucas and go back and retouch it now that it's done or for whatever reason they just you know want to leave it as it is and they're more content to go and do new adaptations Who, who can say 
I mean, when you're in the flow of the movie, I mean, it's fine. Uh, sometimes I, I just wish to see some of the quite, you know, it's fairly accomplished animation uh, and creative animation as uh, these uh, characters blow up and what have you. I mean, in the TV series, it uh, it uh, followed a pattern and it wasn't always that um, that creative. But uh, we we get the story thread going. Obviously, Ken is left for dead. And uh, I suppose this, I don't remember if the TV series... Um, explained this very well the movie doesn't seem to explain very well why after ken has been thrown into this uh well thrown off a mountain essentially i there's no explanation why ken is why ken didn't die but i, I suppose uh, th- this is a universe that uh, you have to be open for possibilities I, I suppose because ken comes back after he picks up sort of telepathically this cry for help and it's a silent cry for help because the character of lynn she's mute uh, she uh, she gets cured eventually, but she is mute, and they use that connection in the TV series as well. So it, I, I suppose it's the rules. Of, I, I don't. I wasn't bothered by by that necessarily. It, it's he comes back, and uh, there is a connection there, and uh, and Ken has to come back, and uh, and boy does he come back in a in a character design. I just wish we saw more of because I love the way bearded Ken Shiro looks. He looks badass, man. And then he cuts his beard off, and then oh, okay. Stuck with you again, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, uh, is that bothersome sort of story? That, that lack of story, thread, and logic for you? That uh, well, why didn't he die, and how does he come back? Does that bother you? Or this is the kind of universe where you're open to possibilities like that. Well, I do think that's one of the weaker points of what they're doing here. With again, kind of just forcing the narrative forward into these. It's almost like a bullet points or a cliff notes version of. Uh, you know, events from the comics, even though or they do change uh, some events, and I think they reorganize some of the order and who does what and who kills who and things like that. I mean, Ray enters the story uh, way earlier versus the TV show. I think uh, I don't think we saw him until season two, and that's like 20 episodes in. There's other logic here, too, that, you know, because when we first see Ken Shiro after his resurrection, you know, he's all wrapped in stone for... Because why? Because he's been buried, I guess. And, you know, he's got entire skyscrapers falling on him. Um, so? And he's he's, un, <laughs> he's unfazed, you know. So it's like, this is a guy who shouldn't be afraid of fingers or guns or for or anything, right? <laughs> he's just, he's the, the Superman of the wasteland. Um, and it's fine. It, you know, it gets us to where we need to go. I think that the, you know, we get enough of the supporting characters to get, you know, an understanding of, of their importance. But again, you don't get a lot of the more integral backstory that you're going to get with a longer form, either television series or story of characters like Ray or Roe. They, they really spent like sometimes 10, 15 episodes on such arcs. So understandably, they weren't going to put even uh, summaries of those arcs in here. And this is this is par for the course for any time they do this. I mean, I remember thinking the same thing about the Macross movie. How can they even summarize that? I haven't watched it yeah. yet, but it, they summarize like 40 episodes into one movie or something yeah, like that. Yeah, pretty much. It's, you know, and they, they skip a big portion of the beginning and they kind of, you know, just briefly encapsulate it. They're kind of, they kind of jump into the middle and then race to the end. But you cut out so many important relationships and, and arcs and, 
you know, favorite supporting characters get like a minute of screen time. I mean, how is that even possible? Doesn't that come off as this sort of stop and start, stop and start type of movie? And like it's so uh, you like know, incoherent. It does, but in some ways, it still works and it's very pretty to look at. You know, it's like and, and like with this, you know, it's certainly prettier to look at than the television show. So you've you've got that going for it. And yeah, it's 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 the thing they do. And there again, there are changes to things that happen and then that just gives them the impetus to go back and, and redo it. I'm thinking of um, what's the other more recent popular series where they were doing the TV show at the same time as the manga and then they ended up doing a different ending because the manga hadn't even completed. Um, Full Metal Alchemist, I think, is you know really popular shonen-style series and the anime series ended up surpassing the manga so they had to come up with like their own ending and then because the manga got to a point to where it was like completely different. So they ended up redid the TV series, you know, so there's 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 like another TV series that's more in line with. Wouldn't Game of Thrones fans like that? Yeah. <laughs> in Japan, so, they redo it. Why can't we redo it? Damn yeah. it? <laughs> what was the line in community? They always said uh, seven seasons in a movie or something like that. So um, that's the standard, right? Um but, you know, l- l- let me ask you something. It's a fairly gloomy story. I mean, again, it's not dramatic to the point where we we feel for the loss of the seeds and things like that. But it, it's a fairly gloomy movie. There, there's very little hope, but the, the, the hope there is is like a story drive here. That versus such outrageous score. I mean, do, do you find that those things clash or you just go with it? Because that's kind of fun to have such outrageous sort of visual style. And, and yes, the story is there, kind of. If you're you're not opposed to that, you know, and again, you realize that this isn't something that you should be showing to a 12 or 13 year old boy, then it's fine. You know, it's like I remember the first time I watched the heavy metal movie, you know, I was a teenager. I think my parents let me go see it. I wasn't. I was just thinking, I was, oh, I'm going to see a little cartoon fantasy movie. And boy, was I in for a shock. Boobs. Um, but <laughs> boobs, gore, uh, intestines, you know, all that good stuff. And, you know, I think that for storytelling purposes, there's definitely some some value to that, you know, to show that, yeah, you can tell more adult narratives in this style and they can be told well and they can look you know, visually different from Disney cartoons. I love Disney cartoons, by the way, you know, but I think there's room for everything here. And I think that for them to expand out the way they did is very interesting. And I think that it still holds appeal. It's not going to appeal to everybody, but for somebody looking for something that's not sort of your standard run-of-the-mill shonen-style anime series become feature, that this holds a lot of value. And especially for me, who's all who literally alternated between uh, watching the movie, then I went back to watch a couple of episodes of the TV series because that's what I'm doing currently. I mean, I'm I'm dedicated. I'm going to finish the damn thing. Uh, or you know, watch a couple of episodes a night and things like that. And it's really fun to see uh, the the change from the TV series where where characters exploded into milk and then disintegrated. But this movie leaves, you know, corpses and limbs behind, and that is cool. And uh, it really wins on that because I like gore. I mean, that that, that gets me sort of comfortable. And uh, it, the post-apocalyptic uh, design combined with the martial, that this is a martial world uh, design with this type of violence, that's always been fairly appealing. And uh, I have fun with the fact that, well, how 
sort of gross can we get in terms of character design? What can we elevate from TV series? Because when we see Jaggy, for instance, we've seen that design. If you watch the TV series, you know why he has that metal grate over his head. Because uh, if not, he's going to blow up. He's been hit by Kenshiro, and then he puts uh, uh, puts his finger on other pressure points to sort of reduce that. But he needs to apparently have a metal grate sort of hammered into his head in order for, to not explode. And that's really, really, it, it stands out. You know, it's a cool design, and it's going to pay off because uh, that metal grate is going to go. And then Kenshiro is going to do his uh, classic, uh, you know, in 10 seconds you're dead. You don't know already that you're dead. That kind of classic line that gets repeated in the TV series, and they they have a callback to the to this here. That engages me, even if the story is well. I understand it, but it's not dramatically engaging. But it it all engages on a on a primal level too. You know, what's the next piece of bloodshed going to be like? And also, are they going to keep uh, you know such a packed character gallery? Are they going to manage to get that into sort of coherent storytelling and? I guess they do. I mean, I didn't have a problem understanding the uh, the conflicts, but uh, it doesn't run as deep as the TV series goes. So you can have a pretty relaxed time, I suppose, and appreciate it on a cult level. And you, you can show people and friends uh, what kind of levels Japanese anime hit back in the day, and especially if you were around the early 90s English release. And, you know, this must have been crafted waves amidst circle of friends you know what i mean if not your circle of friends then another circle of friends are like oh have you seen this messed up stuff we gotta watch it on vhs man it still has value it, it, i haven't been desensitized to, uh, to for me to sort of say well fist of the north star is old hat i i really think that it holds appeal the way it's designed and um that the movie can operate on its own level but i can also have an appreciation for the story depth that actually is present in the TV series and surely the manga. You know, they, they make statements every now and again, like the, all there is in this world is violence. And as sort of tacky as that sounds, it's it's valid. It, it doesn't pack a punch like literally the violence does, but it, it has this valid, maybe cookie cutter to some people, a story drive about uh, martial arts styles. They need to unite in order to achieve peace. And I never minded that at all um, and didn't this viewing uh, either I, I could have done without one or two extra characters tacked on here but ultimately it, it, it works uh, cinematic though I'm not sure um, it, 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 it is better than a TV series but the directing style is quite similar they don't use this sort of, so to say camera to give us new bright vistas of of the wasteland it's more a little bit in the beginning, before the nuclear war, the nuclear war sequence, and some of the uh, various buildings that we see in the background, that iconic shot of uh, a skyscraper that has a boat going through it. That sort of stuff is, uh, you know, we, we didn't see much of that. We merely saw buildings in the sand a lot of the time in the TV series. So I, I suppose that makes it cinematic, but uh, it, it still isn't that it is a massively different type of TV series, but again, no problem with problem with that. But I think Toyashida, I don't know, Paul. Maybe because they were in the in the they had a break, or maybe were producing at the same time with the TV series. Maybe they didn't simply have time to make this this kind of widescreen spectacle. Who knows? But uh, to you, does it look like sufficient as a theatrical movie? 
Well, it, it does feel a little bit um, incomplete by the end. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking by the credits. I do still get the sense that maybe they thought that there was going to be room to do more films in, in this line. And then maybe that changed because of the controversy or because of the success of the television show and they wanted to keep it on television or any number of reasons. But it, you know, it, it does kind of feel like, okay, here's a chapter and there's more to come. It's like the movie chapter one. Right? Uh, yeah. Because, um, yeah, a successful movie. But uh, as you said, maybe they, they had to make a choice, uh, maybe a difficult one. Uh, maybe, you know, we, we don't have that much documented if someone from the staff said that the movie just just wore them out having to uh, include that in the creative in the creative schedule i don't know anything about that but uh, it certainly would have been welcome i mean later we got more feature movies but a tv series wasn't running at the same time back then so obviously they had more time to to do uh, a couple of movies and a couple of video animations uh, in between and things like that so um it, it's curious i didn't mind it because i i don't think the audience in japan would feel uh, cheated necessarily because they they knew that well we, we we have the story, so it's okay. We we, we know where this is going, and uh, it was sort of cool to see that the changes they did versus the TV series, because the TV series isn't erased just because they deal with Shin or or Julia in a different manner in terms of their conclusions in this movie. I didn't mind that, but yes, it is open ended uh, for sure. Some favorite imagery. Uh, I always loved. The image of uh, towards the end where Ken and Roe are fighting, the, the image of both of them glowing and uh, that they're bleeding from every orifice and they just keep punching the crap out of each other and the environments are crumbling around them. So that is really one of the better c- cinematic sequences where a lot is going on, a lot of layers going on uh, as this ending plays out and they are just punching the shit out of each other which is so so cool they're not using that much powers they're just glowing and just using their big hands to just punch until someone doesn't punch anymore and i think that's a cool uh, cool version of uh, of the fight that i don't think necessarily is a copy from one of their several fights of the, uh, in the tv series uh, it always seemed um, a little bit different each each time and uh, when you think it's the final fight it's not in the tv series there's always something that means that uh, i haven't seen the last of you ken and then <laughs> then there's 20 episodes until they fight again i suppose uh, going back to the ending especially when when they sold this to the west i i guess that's uh that would have been a problem maybe in 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 the eyes of the westerners that you you, you would have to assume that this would be some folks only fist of the north star experience and they would they they would be wondering like what's the next one oh but there is no next one because the tv series wasn't widely available as we talked of so there there's different sides to that uh, to making that choice i suppose but uh, i've I'm, I'm fine with it especially now that i have the tv series uh, for sure that that's really the end of my notes so i'm gonna leave it to you if you want to share anything as uh, any highlights any uh any favorite uh exploding head death death in a movie or is just too much to single out in terms of gore here no i i do think that some of the imagery is pretty striking uh, you mentioned the <clears throat> shot the scenic shot with the uh cargo ship like thrust through the very top of a a tall skyscraper 
some stuff like that. There's a chase sequence where a bunch of raiders are chasing uh, Bat in, and uh, his sister in a little in their buggy, and they're kind of racing along, and then they do this really nice kind of sweep out and pan up to sort of a bird's eye view above them as they're racing through this sort of wasteland city. For the time, I think it was really a, a really some really interesting directional choice um, for the animation sequences that you wouldn't typically see, you know, in something like that for them to spend time and money on a shot like that. And I thought it was, you know, nice and 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 brought some something different. So it's not just a film that's always about, you know, the punches and the violence and, and the head explosions. If you're a fan of animation, there's um, other things here. Now, I know that some people who are critical of Japanese animation because it tends to be limited animation. You know, look at some of the the more sparse environmental backgrounds and the wasteland and stuff like that. And for the era, I think it was okay, but by today's standards, it might look a little a little weak and a little bleak. Um, but again, you have to kind of understand this is this is an anime piece of animation that's you know thirty years plus old. So and this was sort of the visual design. I don't think they were. They weren't deviating from the visual design of of the TV series in that regard by making everything come to life around them with tons of layers. Uh, that's why I said it uh, really looks like a little bit an elevated TV episode uh, in that regard. And, um, and and yeah, maybe creatively this was what they wanted to stick with. Slash, we don't have time to conceptualize <laughs> the backgrounds as such. We got to produce, produce, produce. Keep it as we did on the TV series only somewhat better because we got to project this shit <laughs> you know and i'm interested too you know it, it would be nice to take a time machine and kind of go back to 80s japan and kind of see how this was being marketed and sold because when you think about particularly the genre of shonen uh, manga and anime you know it's really targeted to young boys with the purpose of selling product right so you get, you know, your Dragon Balls and your One Pieces and and um, your Digimons and, and your stuff like that. And you're out there to sell toys. You're out there to sell toy robots and cards and guns and, and all the accessories. You know, your Super Sentai Force and all that stuff, you know, has accessories and toys that you can buy. I'm just wondering what kind of gear and toys they would have sold with this very sort of dystopian series. Oh, here you can buy a uh, a replica ripped jacket in Kenshiro style, <laughs> or you can buy a you can buy your own you know uh, jaggy style face uh, cage, you know, <laughs> to wear on your head or something. I, I'm just curious, would the Kenshiro figures, including the really big guy that you know he has to beat his tummy to make a hole? No. Um, <laughs> what was his name? His name was Heart or something like that. Something like that. You yeah. Know, did that guy have a figure you know, of his own? What did he look like? Uh, and were were they proportional? Were they like really proportional? Was the Kenshiro figure like really small, and the villain figures like really huge, like Godzilla sized, or you know how how what would would have been the toys for this property? You know, to make it justice, it would be it would have to be really complex toys where you could fill the heads with bread dye and like open them up and like Fruit bluey juice. bluey <laughs> <juice> exactly <laughs> I, I make kenshiro beat shin again but i don't know two complex toys i suppose but uh they they, they were branching out as, as i said in uh, in uh, com- in computer games and console games but uh but yeah I, I i have little to no knowledge of 
what would fly in terms of the toy market, uh, what would be too outrageous, what would be uh, logical and, and suitable uh, when it comes to uh, these things. But, um, you know, it was profitable, so I'm sure they they thought of something, tried to do something. Um, anything else you, you want to say? You, you, you weren't gro- grossed out by the HD uh, HD uh, grisly imagery that we get here? It's uh, it's all good? No, I mean, it, and with the HD ID in mind, unfortunately, it's, as you said, it's it's a bit of an uneven experience because some of the shots they're in again they're they're not as high quality um and unfortunately this isn't like in letterbox well 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 here's the thing it you you can watch it uh in widescreen on the blu-ray but it's only top and bottom matter so when yeah. when you watch the full frame you're actually still getting uh you're not losing any information on the left or right sides but uh, uh indeed it was projected in widescreen and uh, you get the option on disc to watch it either way i've always watched it in uh, regular regular for free because um i don't feel like it's uh, like i need it wide necessarily but that's just a choice uh so so they didn't go all all toy widescreen uh, uh like old toy widescreen on us and then that was uh cropped uh cropped for video so you're getting the full frame but uh, you have the option on disc to to get uh, more of a cinematic uh rectangular rectangular thing i suppose but uh that's good to know and it wasn't like that until the blu-ray actually i think uh, that's the first time we got the choice but um I don't know how the cropping fares if it actually becomes a bit too tight on the top and bottom, but uh, there's a time and place uh, to check that eventually. But uh, but yeah, that that's shot off that that's in the Japanese theatrical trailer when Ray slices that guy's uh, face in five pieces. That that I think is the 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 most gross shot in the entire in the entire movie, and uh, we get it in full for the trailer anyway. And uh, it it looks distinctive, man. It, that that's the sort of shot where you realize that oh, Fist of the North Star had taken a step up. You know, it's not uh, it's not uh, fun anymore. This is gross, and unfortunately, that shot is quite uh, quite blurry in the actual movie. But um, some things slipped through, despite the parents like demanding <laughs> demanding to be let in in, in, in the editing suite at Toei or something. Let us in, let us protect our kids. We were fine with all the exploding, uh, exploding uh, uh, bodies and the milk coming out of characters in the TV show, but enough is enough. That's how parents work. Rational parents. At any rate, uh, let's uh, conclude this one. Then, as for availability, it uh, it has been out on uh, Blu-ray by Discotech Media, and at the time of uh, recording, it's actually out of stock. But they recently put up a thing on Facebook to say that uh, they've had some warehouse issues and they're planning to restock several titles including the fist of the north star blu-ray so they haven't lost the license like in less than a year since releasing the blu-ray or anything so uh watch uh, amazon or uh, the other partner that discotech media uses uh, there's a link on their site to amazon and so, some other place and uh, and it should be available uh, sometime during the summer in 2019 but uh, in the meantime it can be streamed on amazon prime in the us i don't know if english or japanese only and also on crunchyroll uh, but that that uh, option um, uh, or that uh, when, when you search Fist of the North Star you'll be able to watch it both subtitled and in Japanese and also and English dubbed subsequently so uh, there's your options for you but I, I do recommend getting the Blu-ray I think it does have the uh, home video ending as an extra and as I said offers up both widescreen versions and the uh, regular one free free 
framed uh, version. So uh, options galore. That's a good thing. So I was hoping to pick it up uh, for the show, but uh, uh, streaming it was. So so that's uh, that's us. The first sort of um, cultish anime, I suppose, episode concluded. And uh, I'm simply going to have to think, where do I want to go next? Do I want to tackle... You know, some of the difficult titles. We haven't done Akira, but I'm not sure I can... I like Akira. I really love Akira, but I'm not sure I can decipher it all, necessarily. And uh, we've done Ghost in the Shell prior, though. But uh, I don't know. It feels nice for once to not know exactly where you're going. So you're going to have to use external feedback and uh, simply look at your your library to see see what movies or short series to... uh, to sort of uh, to sort of tackle, I wouldn't mind AD Police uh, personally. I really like that this uh, harder edged spin off from the Bubblegum Crisis universe. So might as well ask uh, Paul that spontaneously. Have you seen either of those Bubblegum Crisis or Bubblegum Crash or AD Police? Yeah, I've seen uh, AD Police, uh, not to completion, and Bubblegum Crisis, but not Bubblegum Crash. All solid stuff. I, I like AD Police more because that's. Um, it, it simply was more adult than Bubblegum Crisis was. So I couldn't connect to all of it, but uh, I do appreciate it uh, quite a bit. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, movies such as Harmageddon, uh, which is also quite, speaking of apocalyptic, uh, it has an opening sequence that's quite, uh, and a feel throughout the entire movie that's uh, quite distinctive. Um, it has character design from the director of akira so and it is quality animation it's from the director of uh, uh well uh rintaro i mean he did uh doomed megalopolis the ova and uh i seem to encounter rintaro's name on tons of stuff i watch now even if he's not director it's he's he almost pops up on tons of classic anime so it, it's a it's an, an animation director that's uh is distinctive in my eyes but uh Armageddon is uh, quite a uh, quite a good title, so we might uh, research that. But in the meantime, I want to thank you, Paul, for the huge assist because my perspective on anime and manga really is uh, not that uh, in depth. And you also have the added experience and interest in the pages, so to say. You can offer up that perspective, and uh, your interest still is uh, very much alive. I didn't know you follow. Yeah, all some of the current stuff you know i only sort of try to catch up on the, on the catalog stuff i'm not uh, finding too much in the current output that appeals to me it has to do with animation style because i'm old uh, i only like the old stuff uh, but uh, it's cool that you are keeping up and um, even though it might be a full-time job to keep up i don't know if uh, because uh, i don't know uh, D- dragon ball have you are you are you into that or dragon ball is like there's no way no, I, I liked the first season of Dragon Ball when Goku was in sort of his little kid form um, and and that sort of initial story they told. But beyond that, I never it just I, I kind of dropped away from it. And then the 900 episodes happened. <laughs> yeah, um, there, there's so much to choose from. You've got, you know, so many different genres out there. And so there's so much availability now. It's, you know. It's it's really a, a golden age for anybody who's interested in either anime or, or manga, and the availability is great. And I think I misspoke earlier when I said um, that Shonen Jump Weekly isn't available. I do believe that for that particular title, I think it's Shonen Jump Weekly, 
the magazine, they actually have a digital version now that's translated to English. I don't know if it's real time or if it's it's not. But, you know, for those magazines, that's like one of the bigger ones. But there are lots of other ones for different, you know, for the shoujo comics and for different genres that, you know, because there's just so much content out there. Not all of it makes its way over. And I know there's even a lot of sites now that you can visit and some apps that you can get into where fan translations of manga will be done. Now, I can't say for sure if these are legitimate or these are just done by fans and they're, you know, breaking some kind of copyright or thing, anything like that. But it's great to see that there are these communities out there that are dedicated to, you know, making this content available. And a lot of times, like for these contemporary titles, it'll, you know, they'll release like a page a week because, you know, they're they're just doing it for their love of it. They're not getting paid for it. And they want to, you know, get this stuff out there to the community um, without waiting for some kind of, you know, deal with one of the bigger publishing companies to come through. And I think a lot of them will respectfully, if something does get published, they'll respectfully pull down their fan, their fan sub of it or their fan translation of it, you know, in lieu of the commercial property. Final question, uh, uh, what is the uh, TV series that you will resume after you and I hang up? Uh, what's the current watch uh, for you? I, 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 I said, of course, I'm still working through Fist of the North Star, 104, five episodes in, 152 in total. So I'm a couple of weeks away from completing it. But uh, what's on the uh, viewing list for, for Paul Fox? Oh, wow. I've got so much stuff because we're, we're in the middle of the... Why, why can't you stick with one thing, for heaven's sake? Uh, there's just too much. Um, if, if For stuff from this era, I'm still working my way through a rewatch of the Galaxy Express 999 series, which is like 150-something episodes or 125 or something. Yeah, so, um, which, you know, I never really completed it back in the day because um, I don't even think they got all of them released as, as English dubs when I was a kid. Right. But... Um, it's one of my favorite series just, you know, as a personal choice. And, you know, they've got them all subtitled up on Crunchyroll. So I've been slowly, you know, going back and watching those a bit at a time as I try and keep up with a lot of the more current stuff that I want to keep up with as well. Yeah, I like that universe because, um, and I'm going to watch that eventually. I, I don't remember the creator's name, name now, but the, the Space Pirate Captain Harlock universe. Yep. Really big fan of it. Uh, Watch the the forty episode series, uh, the Arcadia of My Youth movie. That's actually, I mean, here it gets really complicated. Space Pirate Captain Harlock, the series, is a different continuity apparently versus the Arcadia of My Youth movie. Even though they are yeah. the same story, so there's a shorter series that part of that is part of the same continuity as the Arcadia Arcadia of My Youth movie. So it's like. Mind blown. Yeah, there, there's a, there's like, if you, you can go crazy trying to make continuity connections in, in the universe between Galaxy Express, Captain Harlock, Queen Esmeraldas, and Galaxy Railways. I think is another one, and they're all kind of related, but then they're not because they get, you know, they're they'll they'll be one origin story and then they'll do a new origin story, which, you know, is is completely different. So. There's definitely a lot of content out there, and for me, I've always gravitated towards that more so than some of the other um, stuff out there. Uh, I did grow up watching things like Speed Racer and uh, Robotech and Star Blazers, as I mentioned, when they were being ported over to the U.S., but now it's great that you can kind of go back and watch that stuff in its original sort of unedited form. 
So, yeah, it's whether you're into old stuff or new stuff, like I said, it's really a golden age. Well, for us, we're going to sign off now. So uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com and the show post uh, for Fist of the North Star will contain all the relevant links, including two trailers and maybe some comparisons to the censored versus the uncensored footage of Fist of the North Star, the sort of four instances that we have currently so uh, because that that hasn't been pulled down from youtube by toy or anything like that thankfully so they're not uh, they're not sort of copyright nazis in that regard which is good so um at least we can see some of what was intended so i'm gonna throw it to you if you want to uh, give the kids a little plug for your podcast podcast and your podcast archive uh yeah we can find our old shows at uh, concast.com and uh, I do urge you, if you get a chance, to follow along with my partner in crime, Mr. Kevin Ma, uh, when he writes for stuff over at uh, – he just started a new company, and I can't remember the name of the company, but it's for translation stuff. But he writes a blog over at Asia and Cinema, so please check that out as well. Kev's Translation Stuff Co. Inc. That was a, it, it was something more snappier than that. Uh, that yeah, would, that like, would have been my name, but uh, he he went a different route. It's just a sign. It says, we'll translate for food. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there we are. Thank you very much, Paul, for for the, for the major assist here in the, in the anime special on Fist of the North Star. And thank you for having me. It's been a great revisit for sure. And uh, so yes, let's uh, let's all sing uh, the uh, the Fist of the North Star TV series uh, theme together. Like you are shark. <laughs> That's all I know. <laughs> yes, uh, obviously, they they have English and uh, Japanese, English and Japanese. Anyway, I've been Kenobi, and with me was uh, Paul Fox. So That's us signing off, and bye bye. Actually, he's been Kenshirobi. Bye bye.